So today I have a story and you also have a story prepared. Yes, we have two stories today. Good. So today might be It, a, maybe a longer episode. Yeah. So I'm going first. Hmm? I'm going to introduce you to the weirdest unsolved Japanese case ever. It's called the weirdest toilet death. It's a very grind gore crime if grimes were metal. Is there, is, it, there like a, is there a lot of like poop in it? Are you weak for poop? I'm not, but you know, it, if it's going to be a grindcore, is it grindcore or gore grind? Like how much, how much poop, how much blood, a little bit <laughs> okay. of both? Um, it's kind of smelly, but you're not going to see actual poops. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> well, that's too bad. I was hoping for all the pretty details. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, but it's a really weird case. Because it happened in a toilet, a man died literally in a toilet. Not in the bathroom, in the actual toilet. However... Like, like inside the toilet? Inside the toilet. Oh, shit. Yeah. However, I'm calling it a crime or murder. It is said to be just an accident. So let's see if you believe it or not. Mm. Okay, let's hear it. Now, have you used or seen a Japanese-style toilet before? Yes, of course, and they're the best. Like, get a washlet, everybody. Like, well, not that one. Not the high-tech Japanese uh, you toilet. Mean, they're westernized. You mean like the old the school that are like you, yeah. yeah, like the ones that are like the squatting On the bottom. floor. Yeah. Yeah, have you, have you used that? Before. Yeah, they, they have them like in the like Koenji, for example, the public bathrooms and like outside yeah. the station have those kind of toilets. So, uh -huh. yeah, so we still have them. These old school Japanese toilet. Mm. Yeah. So this toilet is the old style Japanese okay. toilet. So that's on the floor. On 28th February 1989, a man was found dead at a female teacher's house in the countryside of Fukushima. His body was discovered inside the toilet. Now I'm going to send you the picture. Holy, okay, so he was literally, so I'm looking at, to describe to the listeners, so I'm, I'm looking at the diagram of the toilet, and mm -hmm. he's about, he's literally in, down and inside the toilet. Yeah. Like. Yeah, you so, see this toilet. Yep, so on, on one right top you, you see like, yeah, the toilet part, on the top and that's where people would you know get their peas and poops uh -huh. and then it has like the ventilation i think on the other side is that the, the yeah. ventilation and yeah because it's a it's not a flushing type it doesn't flush by water it's a very old type of toilet that the, the uh, water is not going to flush mm. this this other hole On the outside of this house, this is the wall between. In this 36 meter hole, like the vacuum car sucks out the poop. Okay. It used to be like that. Okay. Like long, long time ago. It looks like he's acted. The body was actually blocking the the vacuum. Yeah. Okay. So it's very bizarre. How did they find the body? Like, what was the? She was she just like the vacuum's not working, or like it smells worse than it usually does in here? Like, what what? Yeah, there are so many questions, right? So I'm going to upload this picture on my Instagram too. So you definitely need to see this picture to imagine this craziness. Yep, the Instagram sure you... account mm, is at deathradio underbar itcat. 
Yeah, make sure you like, subscribe, and follow. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You see this picture. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how did he get in there? There is so many questions and mysteries about this case. On 28th February 1989, a 23-year-old female teacher who worked at Furumichi Elementary School came home and looked down the toilet. Then she saw something down there. It looked like a shoe. She got freaked out and called her co-workers. Then her co-workers reported it to the police. The police found that there was a man dead inside her toilet. So they tried to pull him out, but he fit in the toilet so tightly he was filling the space. He couldn't be pulled out. So police had to use an excavator to dig up his body. The reason why he ended up down the toilet was the biggest mystery. Some people said he was trying to peep at her using the toilet. Maybe he was a big pervert and wanted to look at her peeping or pooping from underneath. <laughs> the way his face would be covered in dirty things, but if he was a pervert, he probably didn't mind. The coroner analyzed that the cause of his death was either suffocation or being too cold. February is the coldest month in Japan, and Fukushima is located in the north part, and it gets extremely cold, like minus one degree, which is about 30 Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. So he crept into the toilet, and while waiting for her to come, he just froze to death. Police made it clear that he was alive when he got in there, and the date he died was on 26th, which was two days before the discovery. He was dead for two days inside the toilet. Wow. However, people who knew him thought it was unlike him. The dead man's name was Naoyuki Sugano, 26 years old, and he was working at Fukushima's number two nuclear plant and belonged to a local youth association. People said he loved sports and music. He was such a sincere and nice person with a pleasant personality. He was even asked to be a chairman at several weddings. In Japan, being chosen to be a chairman for somebody's wedding is such an honor. Only very trusted people can do that. Mm. And he was also asked to give a speech to support a village mayor at the time of voting. So mm. he, yeah, so everyone was just shocked when they heard that he could be a perverted peeping tom. The second biggest mystery is how he got in there. Police had to break the whole toilet to take his body out. Now, how was it possible for him to get in there? Since this was an old type of toilet, it didn't have a flushing system. What they do is that a special septic truck visits houses and sucks out feces from their toilets directly. So it had a hole on the side of the building where feces got sucked out, but the hole is only 36 centimeter in diameter. Yeah, that's which, not... That's not very big. Yeah. Yeah, it, which are 1.18 feet. Yeah, there's... Yeah, I can't imagine a grown man being able fit through that easily i mean I, I suppose if they're really dedicated they might be able to but you might have to, like grease yourself up right like mm -hmm. yeah so a fully grown up male it's hard to go through 
the average shoulder width of a 25 to 29 years old old Japanese male is 40.4 centimeter, uh, which is bigger than the hole. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. But now Yuki Sugano was smaller and shorter than the average Japanese male, so he could go through that hole. It, it was very tight, though. Like, mm, he well, could yeah. have made it. Yeah, like, I mean, if he, like, kind of puts his, like, I'm putting my, my elbow up and angling my body in a way. Like yeah. almost like a diver, right, or a swimmer. Like, yeah, maybe. Another mystery is that Sugano was missing four days before he was found dead in the toilet. He attended co-worker's farewell party on the 23rd. He left the party at 2 in the morning. The next day, on 24th, around 10 a.m., he told his father that he was going out for a bit, and he left. His whereabouts for these missing three days are unknown. He could have been in the bathroom for the entire time. The teacher was off from work and away from her house from 24th to 27th. And Sugano and the teacher actually knew each other. So if he knew her well, he should have known that she wouldn't be home until the 28th. Mm, so what's the point of crawling under the toilet if he had no one to peep at? And it is said that he died on 26th, two days before she came home. The teacher had been prank called by some unknown person before this incident happened. Mm-hmm. She was so annoyed and worried, she asked her boyfriend for advice. Sugano was his friend, was teacher's boyfriend's friend. Okay. They knew each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's how they got to know each other. Okay. And he also tried to help the teacher out. So he and her boyfriend recorded the prank call and passed the recording to the Fukushima police. It sounds like he wasn't the teacher's enemy. He tried to help her out. And I don't think he was jealous and tried to steal her from his friend either. Mm-hmm. Sugano's car was found at a parking lot near the teacher's house. The car had a key still attached. This part is somehow so creepy for me. Well, he was wearing only a shoe when he was discovered down the toilet. And his other shoe was found at the bank by the river. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds like there could be some foul play there. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was only wearing a shoe. Other than that, he was completely naked or was he wearing like other clothes but was missing a shoe? Whoa, I oh I don't remember. I, I maybe skipped that part. Yeah. I don't think I, he was naked, like only wearing a shoe. That kind of confirms that he's a pervert. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean it could have also been I mean, there's two possibilities that I'm thinking so far. The first is that, you know, you never really know another person. Right. So mm-hmm. I mean, you you never really know. I mean, if we think about all the serial killers we talk about, like a lot of them, you know, when their neighbors find out, they're like, oh, I thought, you know, he may be a little weird, but he seemed like a nice guy, you know, that sort of thing. Or he was a family man, or you know, like yeah, DK was like, you know, he was a, a deep I think mm-hmm. a deacon in the church, right, in a part of the community. Yeah. So you know, someone I can be yeah. So someone can be well respected, like in the community, but also have this completely different inner world that nobody knows about. Right. That's right. kind of weird. And I mean, if he was a pervert, I'm not saying he's a serial killer. Maybe he's just an extreme pervert. 
or a desperate mm. pervert. And, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of men who have died to fulfill their weird kinks and fetishes. Like, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're not we're not particularly smart. <laughs> so, you know, the, the second thought, obviously, is kind of foul play. Like, why why was the shoe found missing? Right. So was was, yeah. was he killed? at the riverbank maybe was there an altercation you know was there a, how would i say like a, a fight or something like that a struggle mm -hmm. uh yeah that possibly you know and then they were like oh we got this body we got to get rid of it oh let's put it down here yeah you know? well, well yeah yeah i'm thinking the same thing actually the police couldn't find out what really happened to Sugano. More than 4,000 people signed to demand police to search more to find out the truth of this case. However, the police just gave up and handled this case as an accident. Mm. Remember Sugano was helping a politician? Mm -hmm. so some people guess that the politician was trying to buy some votes with bribes and stuff. And somehow Sugano noticed it and since he was a man with justice, Maybe he tried to leak it to the police. Then the politician got mad and got rid of him. Maybe. Another conspiracy theory is that he knew some secret about the nuclear plant which he worked at. The Fukushima nuclear plant had an accident in 1989. Not the huge one like it happened with the 311 earthquake later. Mm -hmm. Though Sugano's manager jumped off the station and suicided later that year. Maybe he knew something. So he I'm, might I'm have sorry, been so, under... So the manager, he committed suicide later the year because Sugano was found in, I think, if I'm getting the dates correct, 1987? Uh, he, he was found dead 1989. in... 1989. Oh, I'm sorry. So he was found dead in 19... Oh, so it was all in the same year. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you for yeah, the clarification. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that happened in the same year. Okay, okay. So, well, later that year, that's weird to say. Um confused too okay. there was an ac nuclear accident and we don't know the relations but Sgano's manager jumped off the station and killed himself after that incident oh that's too bad so maybe Sgano also has been under some kind of pressure knowing something he's not supposed to mm -hmm. yeah well that's so it for this case so we yeah so we have we have four theories right he's a pervert which mm -hmm. is a possibility mm -hmm. uh, he was murdered which sounds like the case right he was yeah. murdered and the body was stored there and so the other one is that he found out that the politician was maybe bribing which you know is not uncommon in Japan I mean we I think every couple of years yeah. we hear about like a politician basically accepting yeah, bribes. Uh -huh. so, and it supports this theory that uh, Sugano was really a nice man. Like he was, he was such an honest person. Yeah, right. That's so what he, everybody around him is saying. Yeah, like an honest, okay. genuine person who's like, hey, so, yeah. you know, this guy's he doing hates. some bad stuff. I'm going to report uh -huh. it. So, so that's, and I mean, you know, especially in the 80s as well, like there were a lot of politicians that had connections with or political parties entirely that had connections with, you know, Yakuza and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think even to an extent still today. Um, uh -huh. But uh, yeah, so I mean, that's quite that's quite possible. And then, you know, the third as well. I mean, if we think about which political party it was, I mean, if it's the if it was the Jiminto, the LDP, mm. 
they're quite pro TEPCO, right? So they're yeah. very, very pro TEPCO. And because that is, uh, TEPCO is the what, Tokyo Electric, uh, yeah. the electric company for, uh-huh. um, for the Tokyo area. Um, so there's all the EPCO companies, there's the electric companies. I'm not explaining this to you, and I'm explaining this to the, the listener. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to mansplain <laughs> to you. For our listeners who are not maybe familiar, so the EPCOs are the electric companies, and I think all of the, the nuclear power plants are owned by these big yeah. electric yeah. companies that are that used to be nationalized, but are now actually private companies. These companies have a very close relationship with the ruling party as well, which is the Jiminto. So, right. and they're very pro-nuclear. So if maybe there was some sort of, maybe they weren't following regulations, maybe he was a whistleblower, maybe they mm-hmm. had a previous accident there, they had maybe kept secret and he said, mm-hmm. oh, we need to tell people about this. And they said, no. So... You know, I think to an extent, I feel like kind of all of these possibilities are yeah. are possible. You know, I don't have all the information, but judging just a, a general overview, it does seem like yeah, it would be somebody wanted and, him to. Yeah, and, and could have happened, right? Because back in mm-hmm. 89, right, uh, there was a lot more crime, mm. right? So Yeah, but the way organized. he was found, though, like, I can't even come up, even though I hate someone and I decided to kill someone like you can't even come up with putting the body inside the toilet the vacuum toilet it could be I mean there's two things here where another thing that I think about is like once rigor mortis sets in it's going to be really difficult to position the body in a way to fit it in there yeah right the autopsy said he was alive when he crewed down there maybe he was forced to crew down there Oh, yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is. Yeah, that's right. Right. Because he was in there. They thought he was in there for four days, but he had been dead for two days. So, yeah, could have been, you know, maybe at like gunpoint or knife point. Somebody was said, you know, get in there. And he said uh, maybe he was like, "Uh, okay, but I'll be able to get out. Maybe they they wanted to humiliate him and be like, you know, you're going to get caught for being a weird peeping Tom. And then no matter what you say, nobody's going to listen because everybody's going to think you're a pervert. Well, yeah, that that makes sense for me. And he missing his shoe by the river. Mm. It means that he wasn't, like, if he wanted to go down the toilet by his will, he won't. Yeah, like, missing a shoe by the river, it sounds like somebody was forcing him to Mm. walk or move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you know, okay, go. Like, we're going to go over here and you're going to yeah. get into this. You're going to get into this toilet vacuum system hole, yep. whatever they call it. <laughs> like the, yeah, I don't know the, the name. So um, the other question on the outside, on the vacuum, on the kind of vacuum vent that they have there, was it covered at the, the time hole? that they found him? Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure the smell leaks from the hole, so I'm sure there's some kind of lead to it. Yeah. But I'm not sure it can be locked or how it looks like. I have actually never used these kind of old toilet. Yeah, so that's kind of one of those, you know, like, was it locked? Like, was he Mm. trapped in there for whatever reason? Like, did they lock him in? Did they cover it up and lock him in? Because I would imagine that because 36 centimeters, I mean, that's a a sizable enough hole where it would be like a hazard to have it open, right? Because somebody could fall in and you know, get their get their legs stuck in there. So I imagine there would have to be a cover. Yeah, I somehow, think so right? too. Yeah. Like that's big enough for a child to fall in, right? So I imagine mm-hmm. that if it's outside, they would have it covered. So yeah, so a lot of a lot of mystery here. 
because you know, was it locked? Was he locked in? Was was it closed? I don't know. This picture is so scary to look at. It, it looks so grind gore for me. Yeah, I mean, just like imagine, like yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah, it is a bizarre story.、Uh, I do think that there was. Now that we're talking about it and we're spitballing here with these ideas, you know, I'm starting to think that yeah, that was probably foul play. Maybe it wasn't an intended murder. Maybe they just said, you know, we're gonna stick you down here and you're gonna get caught, and then everybody's、yeah. gonna think that you're a pervert and you're gonna be embarrassed. Yeah, that's such a humiliation. This is what、mm. happens if you if you rat us out. Mm-hmm. We're gonna destroy your reputation, and you're gonna get charged with being a pervert or something like that. Wow!、So. Wow, that's that's scary. <laughs> so nobody's gonna believe you, or they just wanted to put him in a really uncomfortable situation. Like you know, maybe. But I mean, I don't know. If I got caught, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where you know he's he's uncomfortable for two days before he he passes away.、Mm-hmm. Uh, he's stuck in there, and when he gets. Caught, quote unquote, caught when he gets found. You know, are the police going to believe him if he says no? Somebody put me in there. You know,、right. it was this person who wanted to keep me quiet, or they just wanted to scare him into being quiet. Maybe if he crawl down there,、mm-hmm. like it looks like it's impossible for him to crawl back, like to get out because、yeah. it's, like it, it's not like a place you can get in and come out easily. Even though his shoulder was small enough to fit in the hall,、mm-hmm. structure of this, the shape、mm-hmm. of this toilet underground, yeah, like the septic tank, po- yeah, makes it impossible to move around. Like if he wants to, if he wanted to pee and come back, yeah, he kind of like he's stuck in there. Yeah, I don't think there's probably not enough space for him to turn around.、Mm-hmm, that makes、mm-hmm. sense, right. But you said that yeah, she saw his shoe first, which leads me to believe that his body was kind of positioned the opposite way. Yeah, that's one thing、um, I think is weird too. But maybe he was like his shoe was taken off、mm. and like moved toward his head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because、uh, it doesn't say. Yeah, that's true, right? So maybe maybe he was trying to move around and he took his shoe off, or his shoe came off for whatever reason while he was trying to to move. Yeah,、Rounded. it would be it would be even worse if she saw a dead person's face. Oh yeah, up. It's like, like wait. Yeah. <laughs> With like this big grin on his on his dead face, like. <laughs> yeah, like he, his eyes looking up. <laughs> yeah, that would that would also be quite terrifying. That'd be that'd be <laughs> that's... significantly more traumatic than a shoe. Like. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's kind of good for her that she only saw a shoe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like somebody you know, and you're like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> What? Dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty horrifying story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the police. Yeah, but this case is unsolved, or it's just the police decided to call it an accident. Yeah. So is it because I know, like in Japan, they don't really do cold cases so much. So they oftentimes, if they don't have enough evidence, they're just gonna say it's an accidental death, right? Because they don't、mm-hmm. want to have like open cases. So is that what they did in this case, where they're just like, oh, it's accidental death, shogunai, accidents happen,、mm-hmm. people get stuck in septic tanks. <laughs> Sometimes shogunai. Yeah, shogunai happens to the best of us. <laughs> Shit happens. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you go out drinking, and、uh, the next thing you know, you wake up in some late, some school teacher's septic tank, and you don't know how you got there, and you lost one of your shoes. 
Well, I, I don't think this case was known in the outside of Japan. So well, I yeah, wonder I've what heard. English speakers, English listeners think about this case. Yeah, so uh, maybe some of some listeners will do some digging. Maybe they'll find out some more information that I couldn't get. So who knows? I mean, maybe someone will listen to this and get get inspired to do a little bit of investigation. So. Yeah, solve this case, please. Start going I want to know the, the truth. Start going to the, the library, look into some old uh, Asahi Shimbun or, you know, some <laughs> old newspaper articles. Maybe there'll be some. Yeah, this is just a wild story. Uh, yeah, this needs to be solved, like, for these guys. Like, for his for family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder what his family thinks. I imagine they might know more, you know, living locally. They would probably have a better idea of what the kind of dynamics were. Like a, and since he worked at the, the power plant, the nuclear power plant, right, mm-hmm. they might have a better idea of what, like, you know, dynamics were there. Yeah. But, you know, I can also see them, you know, kind of being like, we don't want any trouble. Like, this was a warning. So even if they did know something, like, they're like, we don't mm-hmm. want to end up in a septic tank somewhere. No. So, so, yeah, that's a pretty horrifying story. Yeah, feels like there is uh, some secret that the government or the Japan is hiding i'm I'm gonna say i don't think it's like the central government it's not like you know here in tokyo the politicians were like this man must be stopped but it's probably some local political operatives or especially given how we do know that you know the government does favor the epco companies they do support them and they prior to 311 they were quite happy with looking the other way when it came to epco right you know not following safety regulations and stuff like that or following uh, recommendations, right? Mm-hmm. The, the state doesn't really want to enforce any sort of safety regulations on these companies. They kind of just make recommendations and yeah. they're not binding at all. So, you know, and of course the companies ignore it because they're trying to turn a profit for their shareholders and, and everything. So, true. so yeah, it is kind of one of those things where I can definitely see it being a deeper story of maybe mm. corruption corporate yep. you know, political corruption so well i hope yeah. i never i hope i never get stuck in a septic tank <laughs> i hope i hope not i promise i'm not a pervert <laughs> <laughs> and we never know what yeah. kind of person <laughs> you never know <laughs> yeah well, so that was my story that was a good one i never i never that's not something that ever occurred to me i mean i'm I, I would like if they he had been dismembered and the remains were you know stuffed in there you know were put in the yeah. septic tank then it's like okay this is we can put two and two together here the guy's head is no longer attached <laughs> to his body like, they were disposing of the remains but you know this is a little bit more bizarre yeah and it kind of leads to to more questions of what's going on there so yeah I'm glad you enjoyed yeah it was a good one <laughs> I will remember that <laughs> I won't forget that one anytime soon. <laughs> So, as you know, I'm from New Hampshire, which is like the New England area, the Northeast area of the United States. It gets quite cold there. Mm-hmm. I would say the weather is quite similar to maybe Almody, where even in May yeah. it'll snow. Wow, well, that's um, pretty cold. It doesn't Almody. snow a lot. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. snow a lot in May, but it will snow. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, every few years we'll have, it'll snow in May. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, it does get pretty cold. Every winter we have like the big blizzards and like they call them the nor'easters, which is like northeastern blizzards that come through every winter. So, mm-hmm. um, so I grew up in a place called Keene, uh, New Hampshire, and it's 
Uh, it's the third largest city Keen. in New Hampshire. Yep, it's called Keene. And it's the third largest city in New Hampshire, um, which is mm-hmm. not saying much because it's, it's not really a large city. It's not a city like Tokyo or, or Boston even, um, or even like Omiya. It's, it's still a pretty small area. And it is you can travel from one side of the city. You can drive from one side of the city to the next side of the city in 20 minutes. Mm. I'm so, looking at the pictures. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a beautiful place, like wonderful place. Yeah, lots of, it's beautiful. Lots of nature, lots of little hidden places to go hiking, go camping. So I grew up in that area. Mm-hmm. I Various parts of my life, I, I lived in Swansea, I lived in Gilsom. So, you know, my family still lives in that area. Um, mm-hmm. But about a 45-minute drive from there, there's a, one of the larger cities called Manchester. There's two cities there. There's Manchester and Nashua. And they're kind of like one city because they're so close to each other. But they're much mm-hmm. bigger than, uh, than Keene is. And you know, Manchester's a great place. Uh, when I went home a couple years ago, I went to a, a live house and uh, saw some like bands from Boston and from New Hampshire um, a couple oh, years ago. Yeah, oh, so bands would go shows. up there and play. Um, they got some local like bars that are, you know, that are also live houses. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great city. It's a walkable city. I like cities that you can you can walk in. But most places mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, you have to have a car. Anyway, I'm kind of kind of setting the scene of like what kind of place this is. So in maybe a 20 minute drive from Manchester, there's this town called Allenstown, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And most of Allenstown, I think half of Allenstown is actually a state park called Bear Brook State Park. And this is the setting of my story, is Bearbrook State Park yeah, in Allen, Allenstown, New Hampshire. And this is about the Bearbrook murders. And this was a long, long cold case that still isn't completely resolved, though we have some answers now. I would like to plug, there is a very good uh, podcast that uh, helped me a lot when I was preparing for this and uh, for my summary. And it's actually a podcast called Bear Brook, and it's by the New Hampshire oh. Public Radio. It's very short. Um, it's only eight episodes. Uh, they have some bonus content also. And uh, basically, even though the, the podcast is finished, every time there's a new break or new information on the case, they actually update mm-hmm. it. So it originally aired, I think, in 2017. And then a couple of years later, there was more information on the case and they actually updated it with a new episode in 2019. So um, it is the the guy who runs the show. Uh, it is kind of like a passion project, I think, for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I recommend it. It's going to go into a lot more detail. It's, 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 it's very good. He does a lot of interviews. So I, I recommend if you think this story is interesting, I recommend listening to this podcast because it's it's very good. Again, it's called Bear Brook. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes. Yeah, so, but anyway, let's get into the story. Yeah, so, I don't know this story, so I'm excited. This story kind of like, especially since I was getting very involved in it uh, the past couple of weeks while preparing for this episode, and it kind of got into my head. I, I was like, Jesus, like, a, there's so many different questions, and there's still so many mysteries to it. So, but let's get into it, I guess. So, in 1985, in Bearbrook State Park, a hunter found a blue 55-gallon and he opened it and well he called the police and you know the police showed up and he said hey what's going on and he said hey you know about you know however however far you got to walk in there walk about 10 minutes in and you're going to find a blue barrel and you know you're not going to believe what's in there 
And so the police officer was like, eh, it's probably like a dead animal or something because, you know, people would leave, like if people would leave dead animals in the park. So for example, you're driving late at night, a deer runs out in front of your car, mm. you hit the car, you drag the deer off the road, you leave it in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that shit happens. Road uh, kills. Yeah, road kills. Yeah. And you know, that, that shit happens all the time. Like deers hit, yeah. uh, you know, people will hit deer all the time. I remember growing up, I had family members who would hit deer. You know, and you know, what do you do with it? You know, you can't leave it in the road because then it's a hazard. So. Right. But so you know, the police officer thought it would be like a dead animal or something like that. Uh-huh. But when he went to the barrel, he saw that there was like plastic bags in the barrel. And oh. the hunter had opened the barrel as far as I know. And so when he looked inside the bag, he found a decomposed human face just like staring back at him. Oh. Oh. So... They set up the crime scene and everything, and they brought the barrels in, and they discovered that there was actually two bodies in this barrel. <laughs> and they found that one of the bodies was a woman, an adult woman, and the other was a young girl. The remains were dismembered, but they were so decomposed at the time that they were almost entirely skeleton. skeletal. Mm-hmm. So... They couldn't do any sort of identification of the woman because they were basic of the victims because they were basically skeletons. What they did know was that they were killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Mm-hmm. And given the levels of decomposition, the investigators guessed that the bodies had been in the barrel for anywhere over a few months to years. And mm-hmm. so they basically placed the deaths. They did manage to place the deaths between 1977 and 1981. So four years later, if we're guessing it's 1981, taking the later estimate, then it's been four years since they were killed. Mm. But they were unable to identify the bodies. Mm. You know, 1985, we didn't have the same forensic technology as we do now. We didn't have Mm. the same DNA technology. Uh, genetic technology so you know without a victim identification and knowing nothing else the case went cold and the case went cold for 15 years for 15 years you have to remember new hampshire is a is a is a state i think there's like maybe 20 murders a year like there's just not a lot of murder in new hampshire like so or 15 years Mm. so in the year 2000 15 years later a state trooper detective was assigned the cold case. So they had kind of started to kind of hand out cold cases and say, hey, look in your free time, look into this, if anything new comes up. And, you know, the case kind of sparked his interest because it's not something that really happens so often in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. And so he went out to visit the scene of the crime, the original scene of the crime, uh, where the barrel was found. And so he kind of wanted to get like a, a general lay of the land and kind of see if he can find anything new. And he started to kind of explore in like a circle, kind of circling around, going further and further out from where the first blue barrel was found. And about 300 feet from where the original barrel, the first barrel was found, he found a second. And it was the same color and the same size. It was a blue 55-gallon barrel. But another one. It was another one. And when he opened it, it was also stuffed with plastic bags that had like a white milky liquid. And he tore the plastic away and it ended up being there were two more dismembered bodies. Oh, exactly the same. Exactly the same. This time it was two young girls 
and they place their ages around two or three. Oh. So that's the extra horrifying part. Yeah. And they were also killed by blunt force trauma to the head and then dismembered. So same MO. Yeah, same MO. Same exact MO, same barrels, and same dumping. So same guy. Same guy. It has to be <laughs> the same guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the victims were killed at the same time as the previous two victims that had been found. So they were able to recognize that all four of these women, or girl, women and girls, uh, were killed at the same time, and their bodies were disposed of at the same time. Oh. So the victims that we could identify so far are an adult woman and the oldest child, which were in one barrel, and the two younger children in the second barrel. Mm. And DNA testing later on, four years later in 2014, would eventually find that the adult woman, the oldest child, and the youngest child were all related. Oh, except one girl. Except one girl. So the middle child was still unknown. So we can kind of, was she a stepchild? Was she adopted? You know, maybe she was a part of the family, but not directly related to, you know, the other three victims. And we still didn't really know, right? So that's more questions. Who are these? Who are these victims? Okay, so we know three of them are a family and related. Yeah. Who's the fourth, right? Uh-huh. So, however, because the victims were still, like, unidentified there were, and there were no leads as to who they were, where they came from, or who the killer was, they basically, the case went cold again. So... It was kind of during this time that there was an increase of genealogists on internet forums and stuff like that. So websites like Ancestry.com, mm. um, you know, my mother got into that um, for a while as well. Kind of, she would go to local libraries and try to find information about, you know, who her great great grandfather was. And, yeah. You know, stuff like that, and build her own family tree. Like she, she really enjoyed doing that kind of thing. Um, uh-huh. So. Is it called a 21 in me? The uh, 23 in me. Yeah, 23 in me is the genetic testing one. So Ancestry.com yeah. also has a similar service now as well. Uh-huh. And this is actually going to be very important to kind of solving what we do know about the case. The case isn't entirely solved yet. But it was during this time that genealogy was kind of getting more and more popular. So let's let's put a pin in that, but let's remember that. In 2012, two years after the second barrel was found, some forensic anthropologists attempted to use a form of isotope identification that was used in archaeology. And essentially what isotopes can do is, how, how can I describe this? So when we live in a place, we're going to eat the food that's from there. We're going to breathe the air. We basically, a part of that place is becomes a part of our bodies through isotopes. So forensic anthropologists were using this isotope testing to kind of on, you know, long dead people you know, for archaeology, you know, people who died thousands of years ago to kind of check migration patterns Uh because isotopes are localized because there's a variation in in the flora and the fauna and the ecosystem, but there's also human pollution that kind of localizes isotopes. So there's always going to be some variation. So if we checked our isotopes, mine would show that, okay, I pro- I grew up in New Hampshire and I've lived in these places, right? So it's a, you know, lived in the Boston area, uh, lived in Iraq, right? Lived in Japan, right? Those places. So they can basically tell where people have lived. So in this, with this method, they decided, hey, let's see if we can use this for some cold cases. And they started to do that. So in this way, they found that the four victims had all lived in New England for some time. Um, and they can believe that they basically all lived together in the same areas. Mm -hmm. However, 
the unrelated middle child had some different isotopes, which placed her as either being from the Northeast or the upper Midwest of the United States. Hmm. Right now, they believe it was uh, Arizona is kind of the big one now. That's so different. Yeah. So she obviously, it seems obvious that she came from a, a different state. So she migrated to New Hampshire. Uh-huh. Don't know how yet, right? So despite this information, it would be years before more information would come to light, though. And the case would once again go dormant. Um, however, you know, as I mentioned before, with Ancestry.com and genetic testing services such as 23andMe, they've become so much more prevalent over you know, the past 10 years that um, it has become like a very crucial tool. And uh, the methodologies that are used in this with this tool to identify victims. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of when it starts, we start to get more and more information and shit starts to get really, really weird. DNA testing eventually revealed that the woman and the oldest child and the youngest child had all been related, as said previously. Yeah. But the middle child had likely been living with them for some time, just by not being related, right? So now we start to think, mm, so there was an, another adult here who was probably present, right? Because or maybe dead somewhere else. So they finally discovered that the unrelated victim was actually the daughter of a man going by the alias Robert Evans. Mm-hmm. Robert Evans. Okay, so when, who is that? Right, we're gonna get into that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Robert Evans is kind of his own podcast, <laughs> his own episode. Um, oh, okay. But. This was, oh. I think, 20, this was 2017, uh, no, 20s, 2016, maybe, maybe earlier. Uh, I might be getting my, my years mixed up, but he had died in 2010 oh. while serving time in prison under the name Robert Evans for the 2002 murder and dismemberment of his then wife, Yoon Jun in California. Okay. She was also killed by blunt force trauma to the head and dismembered. Similar to the victims in, actually, not just similar, exactly like the victims in Allenstown, New Hampshire, 20 years earlier. Yeah. So, authorities kind of knew at this point that Robert Evans was an alias. They knew it was not his real name because they had ended up picking up, when they took his, when they originally took him in, they did uh, fingerprinting, which he agreed to, and they Mm -hmm. found that his fingerprints matched a different name in a different county in California, and he had skipped parole, basically, many years later. So because he skipped parole, skipped out on parole, they were able to arrest him immediately and then do an investigation and search his house where they found the body of his wife, Yunsun Jun. So, but this is a whole, this is what fucks with me so much, because he died in 2010, and he never said anything about any of his crimes. Right. Right. So at this time, we still didn't know his real name. Right. So the question is, who was this guy? Oh. Who was his daughter? Mm. Right. And where was the mother of mm-hmm. his daughter and how many people had he killed? So now he's linked to five deaths. Right. The okay. four that are found in Bear Brook and then uh-huh. his wife. Right. right. So we know that he's involved in at least five murders. Yeah. But that's not it. That's not it. Nope, the story keeps going. Okay. So, you know, because he passed away in 2010, he took his secrets to the grave. He never told anybody about 
any of his crimes. So uh-huh. wanting to know his true identity, in 2017, the authorities released some video footage of him to the public as well as, as photos and said, hey, we want to know who this guy really is. You know, please help us. This is what he's going by. This is what he looks like. And one of his sons from his first marriage recognized him and heard his voice in the interview because they they actually had uh, released some of the video footage of the interviews. And he's like, oh, I know that voice. I know that voice. And so he did DNA testing and they confirmed that he was indeed Robert Evans' son. Whoa, that's a shocking truth. We we now know that his real name is Terry Peter Rasmussen. And they call him the chameleon killer. So they call him the chameleon killer because that's oh, he what changes he did. His, he changes his identity. Yeah. So he would move from place to place and he would change his name and get fake documents and, um, you know, all of that. So what we do know about him is we know that he was born in Denver, Colorado, and had lived at various times all over the United States. So from California all the way to New Hampshire, obviously. And we know that. He used a lot of aliases, uh, such as Robert Evans, Curtis Mayo Kimball, and Gordon Jensen. And there was even more aliases that we know that he used. So at this point, we found the killer. Yeah. But we still haven't identified the victims. We identified the one victim, the daughter, but we don't know who the other three related victims are. Uh So. And why he killed them together. And yeah, why he killed them. And this is where it gets even worse. So it was eventually discovered that a woman and her daughter from New Hampshire, she was named, uh, the woman was named Denise Bowden. I think I'm saying that correctly. They had disappeared from Manchester in the autumn of 1981 with a man named Robert Evans, Bob Evans. Mm, Robert Evans. Yep. We know that Bob Evans would, or Robert Evans, or Rasmussen, as we know his real name is, uh, we uh-huh. know that he would later abandon Denise's daughter in an RV park in 1986, five years later. So Denise's daughter is alive hmm. and was rescued, thankfully, and was put through foster care and is still alive today. But Denise was never found. So we now can pretty much say with some certainty that Rasmussen also killed Denise Bowden. Yeah. As mentioned before, Forensic genealogy would ultimately be responsible for the big breaks in solving uh, the Bear Brook murders. And it wasn't until 2019 that the biggest break of all finally came. They were able to identify the other three victims, the three that were related. Mm-hmm. We now know that the mother was Mar- Mar- Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch and her two daughters, Marie Elizabeth Vaughn and Sarah Lynn McWaters all of whom went missing out of Cal- uh, California after a falling out with Marlise's family. California? Yeah, from mm. California. So what we know is that they went from California and all the way to New Hampshire. Yeah, that's the distance. Where they the were distance. killed. Mm. So we can probably guess that Rasmussen's daughter, who was not related to them, he probably had her in Arizona. Yeah. Probably killed the mother, uh-huh. moved to California, yeah. and then brought them to New Hampshire. But his daughter is dead while they are traveling. No, she was still alive oh. at the time. 
Oh, okay. So basically him and his daughter, <clears throat> he got into a relationship with Marlise. This is right. This is a complicated story. <laughs> Marlise and her two daughters went with him and his daughter to New Hampshire, where he murdered all of them. And mm -hmm. then he seduced Denise Bowden, who had a daughter. Mm -hmm. And then they moved out to California, mm. where Denise died. Nobody really knows. So for over 30 years later, right, we still yeah. have some of the mysteries of Bearbrook murder, right? So yeah, they're not solved yet. Yeah, we still don't know who, you know, what happened to Denise Bowden. We don't know what happened to the mother of his child. You know, we uh -huh. can assume that they're dead. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't really know a lot about this guy because we now know that he's implicated with at least six. And they, some authorities believe that he might have been responsible for some other Jane Doe's that were found oh. as well. So, yeah. you know, it's just how many people did he kill? Like, why did he do it? Like, he took his secrets to his grave. He just... Oh, no, I hate that. He didn't that. say anything to anybody. He just... Nothing. Nothing. Like, this guy's a complete fucking scumbag. <laughs> like, he was yeah. Just, he was just a drifter who just would change his name. And at the, at the time, it was pretty easy for, you know, people to change their names, right? Because we didn't have really? the same sort of ID technology oh, that we do now, okay. right? And mm. interestingly enough, well, not interesting, sadly enough, is that, like, for example, Denise Bowden was never reported missing. Because uh -huh. Rasmussen had told her family that, oh, I'm in debt to some very dangerous people. So we're going to leave for our safety and for everybody's safety. We're going to move away. And they believed him. And they just kind of said, yeah, she, they just moved away. Like, they're fine. Oh, but that's, that's his lie. It was a lie. It was a complete, yeah. it was a complete fabrication, right? Uh, wow. It's just one of those things where, you know, but people would just leave. And they wouldn't be reported missing, you know? Um Family yeah. dynamic, like you don't get along with your family and you say, fuck it, I'm moving to California, right? And then you never talk to each other again because you don't like each other, you know? And that was just the way things worked. We didn't have the internet where everybody was constantly able to keep, you know, in touch with each other or to keep right. happy, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, we know six victims. That's a lot. He's a you serial know? killer. So he was a serial killer. They do believe that, like I said before, they do believe that he was he was involved with or possibly involved with some some other murders as well and some Jane Doe cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are like Jane Doe's dead bodies caused by blunt force trauma. Yep, yep. And like they would be basically if they have a Jane Doe that had like blunt force trauma, dismemberment, and then like left somewhere, stuffed into some sort of container and left somewhere. That's when they're like, okay. The, you know, do, did this guy live here at the time? Like, can we can we try mm. and we find out if he lived in this area? Um, so that tended to be it seems to be his M.O. was he would move to an area with a new alias or maybe an old alias. Right? He would move to an area. Uh, he would befriend uh, a uh, single mother. Yeah. He would later kill the mother and then keep the daughter for uh -huh. five years, seduce another single mother and then, you know, kill mm. the mom. So. Mm. I don't want to go into any too more too much stuff. Like he was a horrible person. He was a he was a child molester also. So he was a serial killer and a pedophile. Oh, that's that's too bad for these women that got to know him. Like there are some people that you you meet them, but you should use your instinct to 
to sense mm. that he's he's a bad guy. Like keep away from him. Like don't get involved with him. Don't and even that, start a life with him. Like, yeah, and that's that's kind of the funny thing because a lot of people who had spoken to him, like family members who now like Marlisa's family and stuff, and they all said, mm. "Hey, look, like this guy's weird. This guy's bad. Like he seems." Oh, they tried one. Yeah, like Eunsoon Jun's uh, family, they had a big falling out because, right. you know, he, they were like, look, this guy seems sketchy, he seems dangerous, you know. Yeah. And that was also kind of his M.O. where he would try to, you know, he would target these, you know, these single mothers, these single women who maybe were like lonely. Because he wasn't, if you look at pictures of him, he's not like a handsome guy. Uh. And people would describe him as being kind of like dirty. A lot of times he lived in like a truck, you know, he just not a kind of the kind of guy like where I, I imagine him and listening to his interviews. I imagine him as like being like this guy where it's like he's just you just don't want to be in the same room as him. Yeah. Like you just want the conversation to end as soon as possible. Mm. But apparently he could also be very, very charming. He, yeah, I mean, he was good at it. Yeah. I mean, if, if he was so successful with this, you know. You know, mo. Then it, apparently he he did he was able to turn on some charm in some way. Yeah, he's. Uh, he killed girls and women around him. Yeah, like, he killed everybody. Yeah, he and killed everybody around him. We don't know. We don't know why. That's the thing. Like we, I think what's what kind of is is most disturbing, and maybe why people don't they don't maybe this guy because he's maybe not so well known. He's not a heavy hitter like Jeffrey Dahmer, right? You know, or uh, well, I just watched the guard. Uh, uh, the the British serial killer. I just watched the documentary on him the other night. My brain. Jack the Ripper. No, not Jack the Ripper. The uh modern one from the 80s. British. I just I just watched this like last week. <laughs> <laughs> My brain don't work so good no more. I'm getting old. Uh, but yeah, just uh, you know, I think because they kind of let you into their inner world, right? They would say, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer showed remorse, for example. Right. They would open up to the police. They would give these, these statements. And even after, you know, being in prison, they, they would give interviews and give statements or write books and, you know, write journals and stuff like that, where it seems that, you know, maybe we don't have too much time left. But he would basically like he pled guilty to the murder of Yoon Sun Jun mm. because he kind of found out that they were investigating his past. Yeah. And. His lawyer was like, uh, no, do not plead guilty. But when he found out they were the police were investigating his past, he was I think he was like, oh, shit, they're going to find out about the others. And so he just said, I plead guilty. I want this. I want them to stop investigating me. Uh, So he pled guilty to 15 years to life in prison. So it's possible that he was hoping that he would get out on 15 years on good behavior and then he could go back to his life of killing, you know. He's a fucking monster, yeah. and there's there's no yeah. way around it. Like, and he even looks like a monster too. Like, he doesn't look like a charming normal guy. Like, no, his eyes are scary. Yeah, he's a scary looking dude, right? Yeah. So I don't want to be like too too judgmental because I've definitely I, I I know people who look like that, but it's because you know they they live like <laughs> a tough life, right? They work like you know, in the factories or the warehouses, right, doing a lot of physical labor every day, you know, or working outside a lot. So I definitely know people that look like that that are not serial killers, right? So. No, but, but I'm sure if I meet him and get to talk to him, I would sense something, something yeah. that's wrong with him. Yeah, if you if you watch the... Yeah, but if you're just looking at him, it might right. not know. 
yeah, he's if you yeah, if you listen to his interviews, like he's just kind of a just a weird, uncomfortable guy to be around. Yeah. So so anyway, that is the Bear Brook murders. There is some good news though. Uh, Denise Bowden's daughter Lisa is still alive today. Mm-hmm. Um, she has preferred to maintain her on it anonymity anonymity but she has communicated through police she's released statements like through the police and she's basically said like i'm safe i'm happy mm-hmm. please focus your attentions on these other victims that yeah i'm happy that he's dead yeah. but i don't like that he didn't confess the truth yeah right so i mean that's kind of one of those things where he didn't do it for the pride right he he didn't want to be famous right he didn't mm-hmm. want to be well known it was no because yeah sometimes serial killers they lie about the amounts of people they killed they mm-hmm. exaggerate mm-hmm. yeah to be uh, famous yeah right so they they kind of like bait the police he did not want to get caught he wanted to continue mm-hmm. doing what he was doing for for as long as he could so yeah walking piece of shit yep. <laughs> absolute piece of shit so yeah but uh that is the bear brook murders Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you for um, telling me that. There's a, so I recommend listening to the podcast. There's also uh, there's some more podcasts as well that are out there and some more info out there about Rasmussen himself and the rest of his life. So when I was kind of researching for this, I was like, mm. so because at the time I knew like the Bear Brook murders was a thing, right? But mm. I didn't really keep up with it, right? So mm. it's kind of like I just knew that bodies were found at Bear Brook when I was growing up. So now we know more and you know the place. The, the case is closer to getting solved, but it's still not completely solved yet. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah Rasmussen, <laughs> he's just like an, an entire episode by itself, I think. So, and I didn't have time to prepare for both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. But, yeah, thanks for having me on. I hope this story made sense. I know it was a little bit convoluted and a little bit confusing, and there was a lot of jumping through time yeah, there. America is huge so mm. like if he he could travel from coast to coast almost I feel like he could get away from it like if you keep on moving mm-hmm. then it's harder for the police to catch mm-hmm. um, yeah. yep mm. yeah so I mean that's the thing where you know he was able to do that he was able to evade the police he would get picked up on like petty crimes and stuff like that but They didn't have the same communication as they do now between they didn't have the same databases that were all connected and everything. They didn't have the Internet. So, you know, it's kind of and that's the thing I was I was what was I listening to. I was listening to a podcast. I think it was Sinisterhood, uh, which is kind of two women who do true crime. I was listening to one of their podcasts. I think it was them. They were saying and I I agree with this where they were saying uh, that. You know, why don't we have serial killers like we did in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s? And the reason why is because, well, because forensic technology is just so good now. Technology mm-hmm. is so good now that they basically, a lot of the times, are just able to catch would-be serial killers, you know, before they become serial killers. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, that is, that is a good thing. That's so. good progress. So, all right. Yeah, oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed the story. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I hope it wasn't too rambling if you listeners are very generous and want to support this show please go to buy me a coffee slash death radio to donate and help thank you yes please donate